Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathram. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathram. If it's your first time checking us out, we really appreciate you being here. Remember to subscribe wherever you're listening and on Instagram at DC Local Leaders and come find me on LinkedIn. I don't want you to miss out on any of our Monday mindsets and new episodes with impactful examples of leadership and mindset. To make it easy, we're going to drop some links below. We want to continue to create value and share these messages of shifting our mindset, achieving our goals, and being a mentor for others to do the same. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please remember to share it with a friend. It'll really help us spread the word. We're also actively seeking partnerships and sponsorships to continue our mission, sharing examples that we can accomplish anything that we work towards with the right mindset and the right mentorship. If you or your company would like to partner with us, please use the links below to connect. Today's episode is with Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet, former Assistant Secretary of Commerce and Deputy NOAA Administrator. Tim's got a great story of joining the Navy, finding his passion for oceanography, marine life, following that, meeting his wife in the Navy, and just continuing to rise through the ranks and increasing leadership roles, increasing responsibility, and the lessons he learned through those. And he's boiled them down into three things that he talks about today. He gives us his three principles of leadership. Tim has also found a way to remember the name of every single person he's interacted with. If he was in a meeting with someone, he developed a way to get everyone in that meeting to contribute, to participate so that he can learn more about them and so that they can be a part of the conversation. He also remembers each and every one of their names. We're so grateful that he spent some time with us today and we can't wait to get into this episode. Again, if you haven't already subscribed, we really appreciate everyone that's checking us out. Please remember to tell people that you speak to, you know, there's a tendency to maybe think that this is a podcast about technology and it's not necessarily. It's a podcast about leadership development, personal growth, and all those lessons from people like Tim and what we can take away and practice in our own lives. So please continue to share this message. Make sure you subscribe and tell your friends. Come find us on Instagram at DC Local Leaders and come find me on LinkedIn, Philip Nathram. I'd love to connect with you. I want to get to know everyone that's listening and hopefully I can remember each one of your names and I'll use the technique that Tim taught me. So let's get into the episode. Yeah, well, Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet. Thank you for joining us. We're here on the DC Local Leaders podcast. We're recording today in the office of LMI. And Tim, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, Phil. Yeah, I appreciate you saying uh, saying yes. I know that you've got your own podcast that you do as well. And we met at Sea Air Space Convention this past year for the first time. We were introduced by CollaborLink. Yep, that's right. Rahul, the CEO, a good friend, uh, and as my former position at the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, which uh, his team supports in a really big way, I felt like it was uh, the right thing to do to uh, connect with a friend of his because He's a friend of my former agency, Noah, and so I um, wanted to make sure I had a chance to meet you. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a great place to start. I mean, you were at NOAA, but you started your career in the Navy. You went to the actual Naval Academy, graduated, and you served in the Navy for how many years? 
32 years, yeah. if you count that time at the academy, which I do because I was subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Um, I, that's a joke. But ultimately, yeah, 32 years. Loved it. Loved the Navy. You know, joined the Navy, see the world. That's what I did. Yeah. And my specialty was oceanography. So that kind of set me up uh, really nicely to join uh, NOAA. Do you come from a military family? I do. Uh, my dad was mostly in the reserves, so it wasn't that I moved from base to base like so many other families. He just did one weekend a month and then a two-week active duty training each year. Uh, so I, I didn't see a whole lot of the military. And in fact, when I joined and went to Annapolis, I was uh, pretty ignorant about things and had to learn quite a bit. But uh, that probably was for the better. Are you from this area? No, I'm from Los Angeles area, and that's why I love the ocean. I grew up on the, going to the beaches in Southern California, and that, that's really why I, I chose the Naval Academy not to join the Navy, but because they had a great oceanography program, and that was my goal is to study the sea and work on it. And in the Navy, that kind of works out. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, why specifically the Navy, but that answered the question, right? So, because you could have, well, why not the Coast Guard then? Well, yeah, my dad had been in the Navy, and so I was le- I leaned towards that naturally. Uh, and really, the I didn't I, lo- I looked at the Naval Academy uh, mostly because of the you know the the sort of world travel component of it. Yeah, I just loved. I had I wanted to go all around the world, and that that the Coast Guard actually now does that quite a bit. They make deployments to the Arabian Gulf and to the Western Pacific, but. Back in the 80s, it wasn't much. They didn't do that very much. And the Navy naturally offered that. And so your grad school work, is that what led you to meteorology and oceanography and starting to pay attention to a lot of that stuff? Well, right. Actually, it all started during my undergraduate experience at Annapolis because they offered that major uh, oceanography bachelor's of science degree oh, wow. and, and 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 there actually i one of the other reasons i applied there is because i had a um i knew about this grad school called scripps institution of oceanography which is you know one of the premier graduate schools in oceanography like like woods hole it's it's in la jolla san diego so you have really scripps and woods hole are really the be- the best there are in the world and having grown up in Southern California, I learned about Scripps and that somehow got into my head. I wanted to go there. I wanted to get a doctorate in oceanography. It was just one of those things. And uh, the Academy offered a graduate scholarship, uh, two Scripps each year. There was only one. And, and that's kind of why I applied is hoping to get that. And it turned out I did get it after working really hard yeah. uh, and, and just really focusing on my studies. And, uh, and so I did that. I went and did the master's degree program, a two-year program right upon graduating from Annapolis. And uh, I was at Scripps. And, um, and long story short, I came back to get the PhD in the middle of my naval career, which was a rarity. Uh, but thankfully, I was able to knock that out, too, and, and enjoy the heck out of it and learn something. And kind of the rest is history. Yeah, I forgot to mention. So you're actually, so you're, is it, so would we say Rear Admiral Dr. Tim Gallaudet? Yeah, or you, is, go, you go pick. And actually yeah. being an Assistant Secretary in, of Commerce, right. that makes me an honorable. So yeah. my, my good friend, Admiral John White, a former oceanographer of the Navy like me, he uh, has been my mentor uh, forever, or as long as I've known him. And he would introduce me and say, well, you could either pick admiral or doctor or honorable. And if you include his devotion to the to service of our country, it makes him an ADHD uh, servant leader. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, because I'm looking at, um, at something here that it, it has all of it on there. It's the honorable 
Tim Gallaudet, PhD, Rear Admiral, U.S. Navy, retired CEO, Ocean STL Consulting. That's my company. But all that really means is that I had, you know, every title is just another indicator of how many great people carried me along the way. Yeah. And that's what it's about is, is uh, you know, uh, the higher you go, really, the more humble you should become because that's how many more people are carrying you. Yeah. Well, that's a lot about what we want to talk about today is that that development, the leadership development, all the skill sets, because I know that you have you have something that you like to say it's all in, all good, all for one. Right. That was something that you put together. And I know you shared that with me before. Um, But that has just been an accumulation of all your experiences. Right. You you mentioned you were at the Department of Commerce um, and then later Noah, all of your experience in the Navy, I'm sure that there were a number of different lessons you learned. I'd love to just talk about that because we can all use that. I think anyone, no matter where they are in their career, can benefit from some of those lessons. And looking at you, because you you have this great career, but it is not unattainable. It's not like, you know, it's not Michael Jordan. You can become better at basketball, but you may never have you may never have his level of success or do the things he's done. You're doing something that with the right mentoring and with the right coaching is attainable. And like you said, it's because of the people you surrounded yourself with. Well, right. You have this band you gave me here. And it, what does it say? It says, uh, believe you can and you will. Yeah. Right? You focus bands. <laughs> Very good. So I'm wearing it. I believe in it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, well, so how did you come to, so this that you put together, their personal leadership philosophies philosophies and principles. Yeah. How did you come to the, develop that? Is that? Right. So this is a one-page document that I developed, really integrating everything I learned in the Navy about leadership. And the, what, the basis of it is this. Uh, in the Navy, we're all taught uh, to develop a leadership philosophy when you take first take command of a, become a commanding officer everyone does this and it's like barely their own personal approach to leadership and you're you know you 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 promulgate that you send it out to all hands and you say this is what i'm about this is how who i am as a leader so just they know what to expect and and there's some transparency and understanding and then therefore that develops trust and respect and has so so really just telling people who you are as a leader and this one pager is is my uh kind of latest version of that i've done this at every level in command and higher and and uh, and at this point, this this most recent version, this this one pager I have, it uh, it kind of culminates everything I learned in the Navy, and I developed it because when I went to NOAA, a civilian agency focusing on environmental and ocean and atmospheric science, I saw a lot of really interest interested people um, interested in leadership, and they were hungry to learn more about it. And seeing someone who had become, been an admiral in the Navy, they always came to me thinking I'd know something, which I did. And I thought, well, let's make it easy. Uh, rather than write a book, I put it on a one page. And, uh, and people really embraced it. I've sent it out to probably hundreds of people. And they uh, have hung it up in their, their offices and, and training centers. And, um, and it, was, it was nice to see that kind of response. Yeah, I loved it right away. So, you know, you, what does it mean to be a rear admiral in the Navy? Like, let's talk about the responsibilities that come with that. And your journey to to gaining that responsibility and the things that you learned along the way there. Well, sure. The the Navy is like an, any organization has a hierarchy, and uh, like the other services, there are ranks, 
And um, there are enlisted ranks in the beginning, you know, the Navy with seamen, and the highest rank is Master Chief Petty Officer. And then the officer ranks, uh, which are more the managers, if you will, uh, but not entirely, uh, they're uh, begin with ensign. And so when I graduated in 1989 from Annapolis, I was an ensign. And the highest rank is four-star admiral. And so there you go. Everybody, you go up the hierarchy, you go up the ranks, and, um, and you go through a, a competitive promotion process at each level, kind of like a company even. And uh, but a little more, a little more tradition and and um, whatnot. And so, uh, and at the admiral level, it's there's you know one, two, three, four star admiral. That that uh, that's just sort of a it's like an executive. It's being an executive in terms of a, a corporate analogy, where um, and you have greater responsibility and you're given larger, major commands. And and that's just that's just it. It's it's the high executive level of leadership in the Navy. But what were the other incremental responsibilities that led up to your ability to be in that position? And I, I want to really dig into because I can't going from being an ensign to where you were. How many years did that take? What did you have to do? And how painful was that in terms of like realizing that there may be a skill set that I just don't have yet? And, and what did you have to do to learn that to get to where you are? Because that didn't just happen, right? They didn't just say, you know what? I really liked him. I think I'm going to. No, no. There's there's a couple things involved. There's a career path. So for your specialty, whether if you're a Navy SEAL or you're a pilot, I was an oceanography officer. You have a career path, they call it, where if you, you know, you, you and it's it's designed for a purpose. It's designed so that. You know, when you do promote, um, you have all that you need to do to do your job at the next level. And so, for example, uh, you know, as a younger officer, lieutenant, I was managing like a division on a ship. And I also watched standing watches on the ship where I was an officer of the deck driving the ship. And then you go higher uh, as lieutenant commander. I was, again, a, a division officer, but also a deck watch officer of an aircraft carrier, a bigger ship. And did that when we flew the first strikes into Afghanistan after 9-11 and that was the USS Kitty Hawk and did the same uh, in 2003 uh, flying the first strikes into Iraq mm-hmm. and so that's a little higher level then I become a commander for example that's the the fifth officer level and that, at that time I was commanding a, an actual um, command a unit and my unit was a, a bunch of weather and oceanography specialists that were deploying with seals and so i was commanding a unit and then of course go to captain captain's a little higher a bigger command uh some some pentagon sta- staff jobs that are pretty high high responsibility big budget and then you can become an admiral and it all gets bigger so commanding more forces and uh, overseeing bigger budgets in the Pentagon and so on and so forth. Did you have to put yourself in for these promotions or were they, I guess what I'm getting at is, is how did you know you were ready? Like what yeah. did you have to do for yourself individually? Obviously there's people around you that see the great work you're doing and probably believe in you. But I think a part of a part of, for all of us, you know, we have to believe before we can achieve it, believe you can and you will. But what did that process feel like when you were doing it. That's a lot of responsibility. A lot of people that you probably know pretty well that weren't chosen to do what you were doing. That's right. And it, okay, there's two kind of aspects of it. One is you do have to look after yourself and um, and know, you know, make sure you prepare your record, for example, the your, your electronic record that, that gets briefed at a promotion board. Uh, so you have to do things and you have to make sure you go to the right schools and get the right qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, uh, I was fortunate. The Navy oceanography community really takes care of 
uh, their people. So I had many mentors, and it was it was institutionalized on how to do these things to prepare yourself. I had you know there was so much 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 training was um, conducted to help us do those things. So I didn't do it in a vacuum. I had tons of help. Mm-hmm. I mean, great people. And then of course you know you may just decide. You know, I'm not ready for that level, or I don't ever even want to have that level. Uh, some people don't necessarily um, put their names in to get command, uh, and that's 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 a that's a personal choice, and that's just fine. Um, and uh, and so that that's how it is. You have to have the desire. You have to do the preparation. Um, but there's also just a great family around that to help yeah. you out. Yeah, you mentioned mentorship. Do you still have mentors in your life today to do what you're doing? Oh, of course I do. In yeah. fact, the one I mentioned, Admiral John White, I love the guy, a great friend of mine. I still turn to him for advice, um, and and I work to pay it forward, and I never say no to a request to mentor people because yeah. it's enjoyable, and it's just doing the right thing after so many people did good things for me. How do you normally mentor another person? Is it, do you try to do something formal or do you just meet with them casually, allow them to sort of drive drive the conversation and just answer questions? A bit of both. You know, yeah. it, it's just, I, I, I open my kimono, if you will, and say, what can I do for you? I open the door and say, and ask, how can I help you? And then, and then you know, it's just usually they're just natural conversations yeah. like we're having here. Yeah. How many mentors did you, do you have? Like a lot of leaders have said that they, you know, no one person is going to fill all your gaps. So they have a mentor that helps them make better decisions, you know, maybe with accounting and finance and another mentor that makes them helps them make better decisions when it comes to career choices and then in their personal life and then, you know, everything else. Are you similar where you have just a wide array of people that you ask for help from based on their experience? That's right. Because I really in part of my leadership philosophy and principles, this one pager is about uh, making every experience positive as a leader. Every human interaction, uh, I believe, can be a positive experience, should be. And you should always be, go into that as a leader, you know, with your subordinates, with your superiors, with your peers, as uh, deliberately and mindfully thinking, how can I make this positive? And even if it's going to be, you know, something negative like a disciplinary action, um, there's ways to grow from negative experiences. And so always trying for that experience to be positive. And generally, I'm just an optimistic person and um, and I like to have fun. So it's, it's uh, you know, thinking about ways to make, uh, if you're having a meeting uh, and making sure there's some humor involved, you know, yeah. and, and having some fun with it. And I think, I think just being positive and trying to make everything, every interaction a good interaction where you grow from it or just... Um, connect and, and build your your uh, your connection with your people is something to strive for and will make you a better leader. Yeah, you mentioned something. We grow through pain. I think, mo- at least in my own personal experience, I haven't grown as much from the positive experiences that I've had as I have from the negative ones. All true. Absolutely. In fact, um, there's, there's one of my principles in there is about um, managing a crisis. And, and sort of what I've learned is that... Um, First off, you should not treat every challenge as a crisis. Uh, those challenges, uh, we get through them. Um, but when there, you have a legitimate crisis, it's important to learn from them and get better and avoid repeating them. And so, right, and that's how that's really often how we learn the most. So, so yeah. you know this, and I can think. And here, I'll, I'll share a good, a good example with you. Um, one of my uh, most uh, impactful leadership experiences, um, where I was more on the receiving end was when my the CEO of my aircraft carrier, the commanding officer, 
was fired. Mm. His name is Tom Heil, and I'll tell you, I there's he. I probably have more respect than him than anybody that's ever mentored me. And you would think, well, how, he got fired from his job, a major job too. It was all over the news. It was in every international paper. Getting fired from an aircraft carrier, you know, is in command is. Well, is that and uh, but what I learned from him is that first off, it wasn't because of personal misconduct. It was because the ship was old, the Kitty Hawk, and we had just finished that Afghanistan deployment, and we had to get ready for the Iraq War that was coming on the horizon. And there were a lot of things that weren't happening, like the engineering plant was broken; it wasn't getting fixed. We were failing inspections, and several things happened where. Uh, Captain Heil probably could have taken more severe action, firing people and, and doing that kind of thing. And it wasn't really his approach to do that. And ultimately, the seventh fleet commander got really lost his confidence in him and fired him. And what I learned from that, though, is that the way Tom carried himself most when, when people are at such a high level and they are, uh, you know, their dignity, their identity is sort of destroyed, if you will. Mm-hmm. They often, uh, they fight it. They could, you know, hire lawyers to defend themselves or they um, might put out press releases protesting the action and defending themselves. Or or they might just sink away entirely because they're ashamed, right? Tom never said a word to the press, never, never um, protested it. And he continued to serve in the Navy. He went back to the States and then ultimately uh, became the, the chief of staff of another carrier strike group. And I mean, that just the total humility of that action mm. saying, nope, you know, it's not about me. And this is my boss made a decision. I accept it. And I'm going to keep serving in our great Navy. And that's what he did. And I tell you, that, that's what I learned the most from. Yeah. Nobody, no hero in, in any of the, the con- it, was, it was him when he got, yeah. how he carried himself through that and showed total, putting, putting the service for himself like nobody else. And, and actually, it, 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 I used that later in, in that lesson in several other ways when I had some challenges and I just had to remember, it's not about me, it's about others and about serving. Yeah, you let go of the ego. That's right. Right. The ego is not our amigo. That's um, right. Very well said there. <laughs> you know, and it's but yeah, but that's hard. You know, pride and um, the selfishness of like, what will people think? Right. Selfish is one of those words that it doesn't always mean that we step on other people to get what we want when we're self-absorbed or we're thinking about, you know, what what does this mean about me or what are they going to think about me or how does this affect me? Even if we're doing something nice for the other person, we're, you know, if you're doing it to hear them say thank you, Tim, you know, that was more for you than it was for them. Yeah. Um, but and, and, and that's a natural human tendency. Sure. I mean, that's not a good or bad thing. I'm just saying that, you know, the human condition and, and what I just heard you talk about was that, you know, he didn't let his ego and his pride of of trying to fight what was happening get in the way. He simply accepted it, took responsibility for what was happening and ultimately right. continued to serve and did something incredible. Yeah, he did that. He would have been robbed of the experience of had he done the other thing. Probably we will never know. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely true. And. and yeah, so that was, and I have many uh, examples uh, that that have influenced this this leadership philosophy and set of principles I have, uh, and he he's definitely one of them. Yeah, that's there, great to hear. And one of those is about showing humility as a leader. So it's uh, and as you we have it here in front of us, and it's it's three main uh, kind of uh, sets of principles. All in uh, is about being committed. All good about being positive. And turning adversity into uh, growth. And then uh, all for one is about teamwork and humility and uh, and all rowing in the same direction. Yeah. Have you, so 
I want to talk to you about your dad and growing up with a father that was in the military. Do you think that a lot of what you've learned and what you've done has been influenced by the fact that he was doing what he was doing? What are some of those things that you remember? What's eight-year-old Tim remember about dad coming home and talking to him? Well, dad uh, and mom together, uh, both my parents. uh, And again, I, I wasn't in necessarily a military family per se in that dad really only drilled one weekend a month and he'd go away to do it. So I rarely saw him in his uniform. But what I did see around the house, you know, every day, and it was the 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 value of service that my parents instilled in us. And it was just something they believed in. You know, what I remember it was like watching the Army-Navy game every year. This was, I mean, this was more important than a, a tree during Christmas time, you know. <laughs> this is watching the Army-Navy game was a big deal because my parents just really, uh, they they grew up in that generation right after World War II. So they had, met, and then my dad, my dad actually deployed right before Vietnam on an aircraft carrier. And when he got out to raise a family, a lot of his buddies stayed in and they, some of them were shot down over Vietnam. These were all aviators. He was in, an, in a squadron and he was an aviator. And then, uh, and some of them were POWs. Mm-hmm. And so this whole, this was all in the background of our family about respecting the service and those, those in the military that defended our country. And then, then their, and their examples and mentors were all those from World War II. And, and so uh, that just was a, a, an important and interestingly, my parents didn't force us in any path. But it, the way it worked out is my I went to Annapolis. My other three brothers enlisted in the Marines, in the Navy and, and Air Force. So we had every service covered. So there's four of you total. <laughs> That's and right. Each picked one of. One That's of right. So, but no one's in the Coast Guard. No, no. And I, I uh, you actually you could I, I'm kind of like an honorary Coast Guardsman because of the fact that I uh, Noah was their biggest partner and uh, a gracious gift by Commandant Schultz was at the end of my time at Noah where he did. He did give me a Coast Guard Distinguished Public Service so Award. Up. I did. I did yeah. yeah. There you go. And and so you have how many you have three daughters. I have three daughters. That's right. Three daughters. When did you get married? Because you had a 30 year career in the Navy. I'm assuming you were in the Navy when you got married. Well, there's a good story there. I met my wife at when I was getting my Ph.D. the second time at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Karen was also a Naval Academy graduate, two years behind me, also studied oceanography. I had never met her before. And what happened to her and we have this interesting kind of dichotomy of careers where Everything clicked for me, but when my wife went into the Navy, 1991, she was a Navy diver, went to Navy dive school, and then went into a salvage ship. And think about Navy diving. It was Navy divers, a big, hardcore job. Well, this was in 91 when uh, there were still a lot of men that were not accepting of women on ships. So it was her first deployment was basically every day institutional sexual harassment against her as the only woman officer on the ship very bad and negative it, it uh she left that commanding officer was court-martialed and um and therefore the navy just lost uh, what would have been a much better admiral than me uh, she she was had so much potential um and the only you know the only good that came out of it is that allowed us to meet because i probably would have never met her in the navy and she got out and decided to follow what she really loved, and that was studying the ocean like me. And so we met at graduate school where she had gotten out of the Navy, and then I was still I was in the Navy but going to graduate school, and that's how we, we connected. She actually avoided me for a time. I was going to ask, yeah. did, you, did you being in the Navy 
almost hurt you in terms of her impression of who you may have been oh, when you totally. first met? Yeah. yeah, in fact, well, we had the same advisor. And when he told Karen, uh, my wife, uh, about me, she avoided me for about six months and had no intention to meet me. Yeah. But the homework was getting hard. Okay. <laughs> and she thought, well, I've heard some good things about him. Maybe maybe he's not like the others. Yeah. And, uh, and it worked out. Were you always a good student? Like, is it because you had good grades? And she's like, well, maybe I should. I, I no, should no, I was not a great student there, uh, but I had taken the classes. So. Oh, so you had the experience. <laughs> I was ahead of her. Yeah. But, but the, the great, the, the sort of takeaway from all that is that uh, I tried to take Karen's story uh, about um, her uh, treatment in the Navy, mistreatment, and uh, use that to empower the, the women under me in the Navy when I was an admiral as well as at NOAA um, and to, to show that I understood what um, inequity and sexual harassment were about. I mean, it was close to home with Karen and I, having three daughters, uh, was committed to never uh, allowing that to happen in the work for any of the workforces under me. And I, I was I was very vocal about it. And and people like to know a leader when they don't just sit there and recite bland talking points, but actually talk about personal um, concern and firsthand experience. And I, I did that because I wanted people to know I was serious about supporting that. Yeah. And it's important today, like never before. Yeah. And it doesn't you weren't just checking the box because this was one of the line items on the uh, the training seminar that you took. Yeah, right. The nonsense, you know, not that those are nonsense, but just that you had a personal investment and a passion about you because not only did your wife experience this, you now have three daughters. Right. And and this is one of the principles in my my leadership approach about diversity and inclusion. And, and again, it's not just a a kind of rote talking point that checking the box. This is that I, I know about this and I know because I know what Karen has um, her, her talent and potential is that, that it's good to have diversity on a team. You know, not every player should be a quarterback. Uh, right. And and that's that's how you need to approach diversity and building yeah. that. And if everybody came from the same place and thought the same way, then I mean, you know, all you need is one extra person in there that thinks a, 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 a solution to a problem is slightly different to get you further ahead. Yeah. Um, you're all using the same tools. If you're, everyone's using a hammer, but what you need is an ax, what are you going to do? There you go. Well said there. You know, um, what do you think? So how old are your daughters? I have a 12 year old, a 14 year old, no, 15 year old and, uh, 21. She just turned 21. Yeah. So she's in college. Yeah. Um, what do you think your experience in the Navy and getting out and doing some of the things you're doing now is having on them for what they think is possible, right? Because we're an example one way or another. That, that's just, it. Well, this is a great point, Philip, that this is a great leadership point you're making because when you reach higher levels of leadership, everyone looks at you. And they, no matter, you know, no matter what you say, where it is, what you do, you are getting looked at and people, uh, and, and so first off, some people might think that's a little um, scary, you know, or, or, but actually I, I, and this is part of the, the philosophy part of, of this leadership approach, you know, this is, as a leader, you have a chance to transform an organization and you shouldn't go into a new leadership position thinking, you know, status quo is good. Yeah, I, I believe that that take that opportunity that leaders have and do make the team better, do something that has never been done. Um, and that that's your chance as a leader. That's your awesome opportunity. And um, and, and you do that through just 
being in your position and and deciding on a direction. So just like my daughters and the family, you know, it's they're all watching you. And and so this is your chance to do some great good for whatever it is, your family, your organization, your agency. And uh, and so take that opportunity, take it seriously, think about it. And and then that then that happens to everything you do and say. Everything you do and say gets looked at. And so, wow, think about this. So at NOAA, 20,000 people, about 12,000 feds, 8,000 contractors. And, you know, I knew that uh, when I was the acting head of the agency and I was the deputy for the remainder of the time, everyone was listening to everything I had to say. They're watching me. And I, I took that as a great opportunity to put out good messages and inspire and and uplift the workforce at a time when it was pretty challenging for them view things like through things like the government shutdown and other other yeah. other things. And so uh, take I just viewed leadership as an opportunity to do good. And uh, and, and really, um, that's just a great gift to have. Leadership should value that and take it seriously. Where did you get that idea or because? Or, it's very, I mean, you could have gone either way, but why did you go in the direction of well, looking at leadership as an opportunity versus, yeah. you know, uh, I, a lot through my upbringing, my parents, uh, I, we, we were, I was raised in a Christian household, household, if you will. And I, I brought into my, I guess my, my views on faith a bit, uh, beyond one denomination, but ultimately that Christian ethic of, um, you know, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Uh, that when you really think about that, that you know, that transcends every religion, faith, uh, nation, yeah. society. That that's that's what humanity is about, and and that that's really you know thinking deeply about what it is to be a, a good person and do the right thing. That's what led me to you know my leadership mm-hmm. approach of you have an opportunity here. Someone you have some gift that you are a leader now. Why not? Why not? As they say, why not um, have your light shine? You know, yeah. shine your light to all who can see it. But isn't that terrifying also? Because what if you what if you don't do it well? Or how do you know that you're doing well? How do you or the real question I have for you is how do you deal with that fear? Fear's inevitable. You're gonna feel afraid. Yeah. Whether you're starting a consulting firm like Ocean STL, right? Yeah. Or you're doing a podcast, or you're just if you're an entrepreneur, you're out on your own doing something. If you're thinking about making a step forward in your career, whether it's a military career or a private industry career, there's fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown is scary, right? It, it Uncertainty is. feels sure. weird. It's like, you know, what? Do, how did you learn to deal with that to do it anyway, to take well, the action? Very good. You know, in the Navy, you take command and you have an all-hands call, usually initially. I, I did this at NOAA when I first took over in 2017. I had an all-hands call, and it was the first one the agency ever had. We remoted in all the sites, and it was, um, but it was also people really responded positively. But you have to look at the sources of fear. And what are the sources of fear? Well, you know, uh, fear of failing, of course, but I mean, uh, well, uh, you're not prepared. Maybe that's it. Or um, you're not experienced. Uh, you know, you're, you're only in the job a month. Uh, you never haven't done this before. Um, and they're all, and just, and, you, and then you address them. Now, one of being prepared. Let's say you you feel like you're not prepared. Well, one thing is take the time to prepare. <laughs> you know, if you're going to get there and talk and do something, prepare. And that's one of my principles: commitment to excellence. Take time to learn about your organization, learn about the people, know their names, know what they do, remember them, look them up every time before you meet with them, so you know them and can say by name their name in a meeting, things like that. Mm-hmm. So prepare. The other thing is, um, well, if I've only been in this job a month or I know nothing about fisheries, like at NOAA, for example, 
Well, no, it's it, you're still part of a team. You know, it's not just you in an ivory tower alone or it should never be as a leader. You have a team. And so show some humility, another one of my principles, and ask your teammates, hey, I don't know anything about this. Can you help me? And, and that then you can go into it and, and just and when you're honest, show some humility, work as a team. These are all in the, the, this approach here. Yeah. Um, then, then that just sort of just breaks down all the fear. And yeah. by the way, being positive, another one of my principles, I generally just don't look at the negative. I look at the positive like, wow, I have a chance here through an all hands call to really make 20,000 people's lives that much better. How wonderful is that? I'm going to take some time and make sure I nail it. And that's kind of how I approached everything I did. Yeah, there was a lot there. You're, you're reframing. You did a great job of reframing the the fear right this isn't something that's scary because it's unknown this is a great opportunity for me to help a lot of people and you also mentioned something that i think a lot of people that have been on this podcast and other people that i just talked to that are in a leadership role it seems like the best leaders are the ones that ask for the most help not necessarily the ones that have all the answers that's absolutely true now it it, it kind of goes both ways uh, so you're being humble acknowledging what you don't know working as a team and asking for help. But at the same time, you know, you're often p- picked to be a leader, hopefully, <laughs> because yeah. because you do have something. You do know something. And I, I that's that's was always fun for me, too, in that, um, you know, even in the civilian agency of NOAA, I often brought in a lot of my naval experience, like with this leadership philosophy, because, um, you know, I mean, I knew it could add value. And, and one, you know, th- there's just certain times where, uh, we were uh, we, we would go into something and knowing I had worked on oceanography issues and and a lot and so when we were NOAA's ocean service was pushing forward something like our effort to map all the U.S. exclusive economic zone, well I had a lot of experience there. I've worked on ships that did hydrographic surveying and mapping, and so I you know I took I took did try to build on strengths and bring them in. Um, and and people like when they have an authority or a boss that or leader that does have credentials. So you, you know it's 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 important to kind of go look at both ways. Acknowledge your deficits, but you know make your credentials kind of elevate them and and use them to advance the team. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so I that's you know having a PhD, being a retired admiral, that that was something I knew would open doors when I was trying to advance NOAA in the interagency. Um, good example. Uh, one of the things that we that, that we did is we helped contributed to a national artificial intelligence strategy, and uh, and I wanted Noah, you know, at the table there because we were doing so much good AI for weather, for for coral mapping, for ocean science and prediction, and 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 fisheries management. And I thought this this is good work. You know, this isn't just a bunch of R and D. This is applied AI benefiting the American people and economy. Let's let's get up there, and you know, and that, so I would get, I would, I'd use my title and rank and prior experience to open doors, and and when I when I when I was in the White House briefing officials and trying to advance our role in a given strategy or plan, uh, people would listen, and so that's 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 kind of it. You want to use what you have, but I also want to acknowledge what you don't. Yeah. How do you? Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. So how do you know that? How do you determine whether or not you need to that you don't know what you don't know? Right. Sometimes we can believe our own, th- you know, if I believe it, it must be true kind of thought process or like, you know, uh-huh. just, and it turns out just because I happen to believe it doesn't actually make it true. Yeah. Well, this is important part of, of leading. And that is, 
you know, you, you lead by personal interaction and uh, it's important to listen. <laughs> and, you know, as you have meetings with people, uh, it's really important, you know, like just like this is a kind of a meetings 101. Uh, again, I mentioned it's really important to me, at least to have positive, have it be positive. Well, how do you do that? Well, well, make sure you know everybody in the room. You know, there's a lot of times where you come into a meeting and you don't know everybody. I, this happened all the time in Noah because you know, they bring in people sitting around the sides of the wall, right, or the room. And well, I, I try to look up before every meeting, you know, on LinkedIn, everybody. We're, we're, oh, they got a degree over here. I got, I know people who went to that school, and I just would try to learn little things because, first of all, I love the people that agency. They're all we're so like minded. They're ocean people like me, or they're weather environment people. And then, um, and then I'd make a point to kind of bring that out in the meeting when people talked, and have not have it be just total business, but right. ask about people and include them into the story and into the meeting, but their personal lives. It sounds like we're just something about them. Yeah. So you're talking about being people first. Absolutely. That's that's how things get done. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, so look them up. Make sure you know the people in the room. If you don't ask them, hey, oh, you're new. I don't know you. What's your name? That's just being a you know, and that goes so huge in terms of the. People just like to be acknowledged and valued, mm-hmm. and it's simple. So no one's invisible. Everyone's important. You know, even the janitor cleaning the the restroom. If it wouldn't, you wouldn't have a safe, you know, hygienic environment if it weren't for them. So make a point to thank them. Yeah. But ultimately, in a meeting, you know, know the people, know the agenda, do the homework. Don't make it a hey, brief me on this. I know nothing about it. Uh, it should really be that you take disciplined time commitment to excellence again and one of my my principles so that that you you show some mastery some serious study some effort then 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 that way you can just have a discussion and not take time to be educated you can actually say well here's what i know and then beginning your point about uh, is listening so you may think you know everything having read the brief but then that's where you want to take that time for the meeting to listen what do you all think about this and go through the and ask everybody make sure you ask everybody and someone who hasn't volunteered make sure you ask them by the end of the meeting mm-hmm. hey you haven't said anything joe what do you think and you know it's just important to listen because then you then you realize oh i never knew that because you're always never going to know anything life uh, learning is a lifelong process if you can always remember that um, then then i think you'll you'll be able to find those things you you didn't know you didn't know. Yeah. And you've taken the transactional nature out of every conversation out of it. Right? right. And you've included everybody, you know, asking. I think that goes a long way. Asking the person that hasn't said anything in the meeting to actually say something probably does so much more for that person as an individual. Even if what they say or do doesn't actually help or contribute in a major way, you got them to speak in the meeting. So the next time around. They may, because who knows when they're going to be able to actually add the biggest value of something that you may not even be thinking about. And how much confidence did you build in that person, that young woman or, or, or guy that that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to get to be in a room with someone, you know, because there's all the, the hierarchy of of status and of positions and this feeling of chain of command. And like, maybe I shouldn't speak in a room full of these kind of people because they're going to think I'm I'm not I'm dumb or I'm speaking out of turn or something like that to take that out of it. And now, you know, who knows? Now you've you've introduced a whole another set of thought, right? And and I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the you can encourage that um, that comfort level, you know, for people to contribute by being just human, by being personal, you know, knowing their names. And it, here's something I did, I focused on a lot, and people at Noah would remember it well. That I got a lot of comments on this, but. Um, 
it should one of your highest priorities in a meeting and just in leading is knowing people's names, remembering them. People would think I had this like crazy photographic memory because I would. I, re- I remember most people's name I met, at, certainly everybody in the agency. Um, and, and that's only because I worked really hard at it. I, I, kinda, I knew the value of it. So if I saw someone in the hallway that I'd seen only once in a meeting six months a year later, I usually remember their name because every time I had a meeting, I'd go back and either I'd reinforce it by just studying their background, looking them up or sending them a personal message to reinforce the connection in my mind and saying, hey, Erica, you did a great job in this meeting. Thank you for your contribution. Then people would just be blown away by that, you know, from some senior executive because no one ever did that before. Right. And it takes some time and work, but it, you also find it's incredibly beneficial for the or agency because that stuff spreads like wildfire. Yeah. I mean, people would, I, I would uh, routinely, if I, if I read the name of anybody in, in the agency in the news and national news, like LA Times, wildfires, this forecaster at the weather office in LA, you know, said that the wildfire, the winds are going to shift and something, and it was in a big news. I would write that person an email that day. I always, junior forecaster, great job. You showed well on the LA Times, national news. These are just people on the TV. Yeah. No, if it was, if it was a NOAA employee, oh. if it was a NOAA employee, a forecaster, for example, at the weather service, that anytime, anytime they were in the national news, I always wrote them an email, and I do this every day, probably. I mean, every day they're in the, someone's right. in the news. Could okay. be, it could be a fisheries biologist talking about marine mammals and rescue. Or, you still doing that now? No, no. I mean, I don't work for the agency anymore, yeah. but uh, it's not appropriate, really. I mean, sometimes I do, but that there's. But a, when you were there, and it didn't matter if they directly reported to you or no. were on your team or hey, not. If I, if I was the deputy administrator or the acting administrator. I mean, I was. I didn't. Yeah, and sometimes the chain of command would get a little ruffled because they were just worried that they'd have to staff something but it wasn't about that it was just about recognizing individuals and and I mean, this was deliberate it wasn't just about being a, a cheerleader you know because first off every time i did that i learned a little more about the agency you know oh there's this person in office doing this and so my, by reaching out to them it would just reinforce in my mind and i used all that i mean that was stuff i'd used during congressional hearings just that knowledge of what people did the second thing is as i mentioned I, I know people, I've learned this, and when, a, when someone junior gets the CEO, reaches out to him and says, you did great, what do they do? They tell their 10 friends, and, and then they tell the chain of command, and, 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 that, and that gets gets around, and people go, you know, um, this, is, uh, I'm really, this is the kind of leader I want to be, or, or, and that's, that's well, what I, tr- I deliberately try to, to achieve that effect. Yeah, I think that's huge. It's, you know, people will learn more about you before you haven't before you even met them when you're doing things like that, because that person's going to say, you know, when I worked in this group, that person did this thing for me. And I think we respond to that. We respond to the way that people make us feel way more than, you know, um, anything else. It's that's right. You know, you want to work for a team that you can see yourself in, that you both belong and fit in because anyone can fit in. You can wear the right clothes. Um, that's probably the easiest thing to do. This is something I've read often. You said it really well, Philip, is most people may not remember what was said, uh, you know, by a leader or in a, in a meeting, but they do remember how they felt. Yeah. And, 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 and it's a very, you know, feeling good and valued versus not is a big contrast. Yeah. We <laughs> yeah. all want to feel significant, right? That yeah. doesn't mean we have to be the most significant in the room, but we want to feel yeah. that there's value to us being there, especially in an organization. Exactly. Right? If you just blend in with the furniture or you're treated as if though you're blending in with the furniture, you may not stay there very long and you definitely, 
you know, I don't know what your feelings would be towards the leadership there, but they probably wouldn't be great. No. Or they may be non-existent, which I think is even worse. Yeah. Yeah. I've, right? seen, I've seen that too. Right. Right. Where they just feel like, you know, where, where they don't even have anything to say about they may They never met them. Right. And actually, this goes to this leadership principles and approach I have here that that um, transforming organizations that 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 my philosophy of being a leader, you have this opportunity, you should take it. And and that's exa- that's one aspect of it is making the organization better in function and also in in, in um in spirit, right? And and that that people leaving saying, you know, I really felt valued under that leader. That's that's what you want. That's a transformation yeah. for a lot of organizations that would yeah. be you know, so Tim, what are some of the things, I mean, we talked a lot about your experience with the military and I'd love to, I'd love to understand some of the, the things that you learned in the Navy that still apply to your everyday life now. And it, maybe it's not business. What's your morning routine like? What do you do every day that maybe you learned there or what's different about it now? Ha! Huh. It's actually the same. I kind of, yeah. the Navy taught me a number of things or I learned from them and uh, ultimately in a lot, this is related to my whole leadership approach because it's really a life approach. I personally, you know, like to prepare for the day. You said you take a cold shower at four thirty. You know, every morning. I do. I like to get up, get some exercise in, and do some reading, and just I like to um, I like to be prepared for the day. And so, preparing for the day is something I've always kind of done. And uh, I'm not one to stay up late and sleep through. I like to, you know, get energized and have a productive day, whether it be kayaking with my family, you know, or taking care of my consulting business right now is just um, getting up early. I like to stay fit. I think I believe in a mind, body, spirit um, kind of approach to life. It all works together. And so physical fitness is a part of that. And that's I like to hit that in the morning. I was a swimmer, by the way. Yeah. Swimmers usually doing two a day workouts all my entire, you know, um, upbringing in high school and college. So I've taken that discipline so you play sports. Uh, yes. But yeah. swimming isn't necessarily a team sport, is it? It's it's a no. Yeah, but it is. You know, you go look at the recent Olympics, Team USA swimming just crushed it. And, and they're working together. There's relays. Everyone's cheering for each other. It's a team sport because yeah. at the end of it, you know, it's a team. It ultimately is a team competition. Not so you know, dynamic like soccer but or hockey. But ultimately, it is. It, it can be. Is the, I guess what you, yeah. it can be. Do you think that some of that. So I want to talk a little bit. I want to see how regimented your morning routine is because that's that's something easily that, that that's something that someone can easily replicate if they wanted to be a little bit more disciplined and learn from your discipline they can practice that discipline um but but swimming in particular that's come up a, a lot there have been multiple leaders that have told me they were either a triathlete or swimming uh long runners there's something about that individual time of doing something hard and getting better at it that translates to something not mm. sure what i want you to tell me what you think that is oh absolutely gosh i owe so much to the sport of swimming for my success because of that you learn about goal setting you do learn about teamwork because you're with a team you are working with a coach and a coaching staff and um and all that's part of a team and then you um 
And then you also learn, uh, you know, about discipline. You learn about failure. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, and I was a distance swimmer, so I swam the mile, for example. And it, I had a lot of bad, bad races. It's just a hard race, you know. And so, but also some great victories and and good good wins. And so, um, uh, you know, that that all just helps you become a stronger person through that process. And um, and then you also benefit as a culture of fitness, physical fitness, and. Um, you know, and so that's a kind of a, and you know, a lot of people, I think when they go in, approach careers, um, there has to be balance, you know, and a, a family, a life work balance. And, and so playing sports, being part of a team, physical fitness is an element of that. And I, I, I that's why I kind of religious about um, getting my exercise in every morning. It just kind of, and sometimes, you know, I'll do a noon time kind of run again. That's where I get my best presentations and thoughts done is when I go on yeah. a long run. So that's, yeah. Is it the same every morning? Are you waking up at the same time? Are you doing the same? Well, what's the routine? It's good that you ask. Uh, first, really, the bigger picture here is generally it is for me. Um, not always, because sometimes there's evening events will make me say, I'm going to sleep in. <laughs> but, but ultimately, the, the, and this is in my, my leadership approach. There's no formula for leadership okay, or career success, I believe. It's, it's very personal. And you have to find the leadership approach that works for you. You know, I, I have a personality that's positive and generally, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I wouldn't call myself like a great Santini type of leader. Uh, look, th- look it up for our listeners who've not heard of that in a movie. Uh, but ultimately, I'm not like a, a super autocrat or disciplinarian. I don't like to discipline people. I like to motivate and inspire and, and really kind of uplift. Um, but I've done it. I've fired people. It's not fun, but sometimes you have to. But I, I'm, my approach is a little more on the positive side, if you will. Um, and and that's worked for me as an oceanographer. I wasn't like you know special forces or anything. Um, Do you journal or write down affirmations when you talk about that positivity? Mm-hmm. Is gratitude list? Um, I can think of a number of things. I don't want to. I want. Yeah, to, that know. that's what I did at NOAA. You know that was my method of, of doing that. That kind of affirmation is sending emails and or mentioning people in presentations. My mo for presentations uh, was always to tell stories through the agency's people you know for example this leadership approach i have i created a presentation and it was during an all uh, a big leadership seminar attended by like a thousand people uh, virtually and uh, and i went and told the story of all my leadership all these principles all in all good all for one through all the different offices at NOAA, and I, I used pictures of them pictures of them groups of them me with them and I and all the different ones, satellites, you know, people who are flying the satellites, people who are catching fish and, and studying them, people who were uh, diving on shipwrecks that I joined, which I loved <laughs> or coral reefs. And, and I tell, and I mentioned them by name and they're, they're and they loved it because they were seeing themselves and they're seeing themselves valued uh, so much so that the agency's leadership would mm-hmm. talk about them, mm-hmm. and um, ultimately, but that would that kind of gratitude and affirmation, and that it goes both ways. It would just yeah. uplift me. It's it's you know that there's a for those listening, there is a really good uh, TED talk by a guy named Sean Aker, A C H O R, and uh, it's called the Happiness Factor. I think happiness sean Aker, you'll find it and it's all about that how people perform so much better when they're feel valued and they're positive 
And, and one way to generate positivity is doing that. Thinking, you know, either journaling or sending messages out to people saying, good job today, and, and generating positivity in your, in, your, in your world. And that just ends up leading, elevating you as a person and your performance. So that's a really good one that you get yeah. at here. And I, I, everybody has a different way of doing that. And, um, and I like to do that through, you know, reaching out to people in the agency. Right. But you're saying taking those actions does something. And it sounds like it does something for both you and the other person. Exactly right. right? So yeah. you're being of service, but you're also, and that's a, that's something we can all replicate. That's a doable thing. If we want to, if we want to mirror some of the the characteristics of your career, not even just the career, just, you know, how to build that discipline to, to be better, right. To continue to improve. We can just take that action and it will do something. It probably, did it feel weird when you first started doing it? Was it uncomfortable? No, no. I mean, it just, it, it evolved over time. I mean, it's yeah. my natural personality, by the way, thankfully, and, and seeing how it would work. I did, I kind of did a lot of that in the Navy and I really elevated it at NOAA yeah. because of it was natural to me because I really did enjoy the people and their work so much that it was just, I was wanted to do that. And, uh, and, it, and it, it worked out. I mean, it really, I know a lot of people were affected when I left. I no kidding. I probably that last day I received at least 300 emails from employees and, and I actually just forwarded them all to my personal account and then answered each one after I left. Yeah. Um, and thousands over the years, over the four years of, social media uh, messages and whatnot uh, just thanking me and and, that, and of course it was rewarding but it was nice to know like, like leaving the the organization in a better place that we all should aspire for that yeah but it be your family or or the corporation or the team the sports team that's just that's something i think that's worthy yeah here's something that so we've talked a lot about your positive nature and I can see it. I can feel it. It feels great. I, if you know, <clears throat> we're doing this live and in person, so I'm really glad we were able to do that, but I can see it. I can feel it. But what I call it, the jumping off point, it's a moment where you can no longer keep doing what you're doing, but you may be unsure about what to do next. You're at that crossroad, that inflection point. It might even be a very fearful or hurtful experience that you're now grateful for but at the time was a struggle or a painful uh, experience what's one of those things that you can look back that have really changed you as an individual well there's uh many but maybe we'll just use this point in time as an example so for for uh so I was a, a, a um, government official, if you will, at NOAA, and um, I was not asked to stay. Uh, being a, you know, a political appointee is what I was. <clears throat> Fine. I wanted to stay. I asked to stay. But that's just not how Washington works, as you know. That's okay. Uh, and so uh, I basically had to decide what to do with myself. And ultimately, I realized I probably can contribute pretty well as a private consultant uh, because of my connections and experience. Now, that was total new territory for me. I had been in the government for 36 years. <laughs> so this is this is definitely uncharted waters. Uh, but my wife and I, you know, we, we worked together and I had some really great mentors, uh, a really wonderful uh, um, company called EMT Connects. Uh, I, I worked with a woman named Eileen Tarjan, who uh, consults and does life coaching. And she helped me kind of learn and navigate starting up my own business. 
And and then I had a mentors, a number of other mentors, and I ultimately we we have a business now. And now I I, I work to uh, uh, with a number of different ocean and weather and environmental tech companies yeah. that are contributing in a giant way to the Navy, to NOAA, to others. And uh, and I'm having a, a lot of really a lot of fun. And, yeah. And, and so I mean, believe me, this was definitely having done you know been living by normal government protocol and process for 36 years. This is a tough break. Did it feel like getting fired? No, I wouldn't say. I feel, well, but it no. wasn't what you wanted, and it felt like disappointment. It, you know, that's actually very true. I did want to stay, I re- and I asked. Why so I asked? I asked for a reason. So I was a little bit disappointed, but then I realized it was really a good break. It was the right time, and so that was something else doing for you, which you wouldn't have otherwise done for yourself. I, you know, no. If I if they said Tim, do you want to stay? I would have stayed. Right. But but now I'm I'm glad I I, I you know I, it also was a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I. Uh, but look now, at how different you are now because of that work. Oh, you I'm now not, know how to navigate and do things that you didn't know how to do I'm that you grateful. wouldn't have been able to learn. Sure, sure. No, very grateful for it. So, and now it's just a different a different path, and it's really fun. Yeah. And I do believe I really believe our private sector has so much to offer. Uh, you know, governments move slow, and our government especially. So, public private partnerships are something I preached all the time at, when I was with NOAA and the Navy, and so now I'm on the other side of it. Yeah, with well, I met you uh, at the IX Blue booth. Give That's them a right. little bit of a, a promo there. They had the cool uh, underwater drone. It's the first uh, time I saw. Yeah, I I've never seen a drone submarine before. It looked. It's actually a surface drone. It's like a, oh, that's these, on top. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but it's like this. This is called the Drix. It's. I want one. It, 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 I do too. Actually, I think, and I want the Navy to want them because they are they're really awesome at hydrographic surveying. The best in the business, by the way, in terms of stability and all sorts of other potential applications. As we need them to keep our competitive advantage against Russia and China right now. Yeah, we talked a little bit about China kind of off air and I didn't realize I I was I was able to learn a lot from your podcast, right? The Blue Economy. The American Blue Economy. The American Blue podcast Economy. on on Coastal News Today. Yeah. Yeah, and if you don't know about this podcast, check it out. That one episode, you know, we had talked a little bit about China and and I had kind of boiled it down to being well they're the number two economy they want to be number one but it's it's a little bit different from that and I didn't realize how much like fisheries in Alaska played a role in that I, if you would have asked me you know what it meant to compete for two two economies to compete I wouldn't have thought about fisheries in Alaska oh gosh Alaska fishery is the largest by volume fishery in the world it's huge economic contribution to our GDP and yeah I was just actually Senator Sullivan of Alaska was on my very first episode and uh, as were others uh, the former head of uh, NOAA fisheries Chris Oliver was on that first episode too a big part of our of our prosperity and, and our competition against China because China is really just ravishing the, the seas. They are through illegal fishing. They are depleting fish stocks and doing great harm. And that is the difference between China and America. So China, you know, it's not just number one and number two. It's the fact that we have values that we, positive values that we spread across the world like democracy and freedom and liberty and theirs are not so they mm-hmm. they are destroying the environment on the way they have predatory lending practices uh, with other nations and they're so there's there's a lot of reasons why um that we could go into on a whole yeah. separate episode but ultimately well the, or they can tune into the american blue economy because you get into a lot of those things we do we talk all about that in fact yeah. the american blue economy 
podcast on Coastal News today is uh, really not only fun for me, but um, we'd start showcasing some superstars. I've had uh, Peter Domenical, the, the director of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Jim Riley, the former U.S. Geological Survey director, is on that last episode. He's also a three-time shuttle astronaut, five-time wow. spacewalk uh, experience. And, um, and and others, uh, Ian Carnes, the founder of Pro Surfing, was on an episode, and Megan Henny Greer is a, a champion free diver, a female free diver, and so we just we have a great and, and several other senators, Senator Whitehouse and Senator Wicker were on two previous episodes, so it's it's a lot of fun, and there's some great people on it, so I encourage everybody to check it out. Yeah. So anyone who wants to, um, you know, our community, you know, this podcast is to help anyone who wants to make a change in their life, anyone who wants to. Be to keep getting 1% better every day. Someone wanted to reach out to you to get in touch, to work with Ocean STL or find a way to just communicate with you, pick your brain, and maybe you can help them come up with an idea that they wouldn't have otherwise had. How do they reach out to you? OceanSTL.com. It's that easy. Yeah. All right. Well, great. T- I feel like I could talk to you all day. I would have a good time doing that, but um, I know we both have things to do. Yeah. But just thanks to this great uh, hour-long experience. It's been wonderful. Yeah. Now- Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders, on Instagram at DC Local Leaders, or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.